Welcome back, everybody. This is lecture number 10. We are talking about assembly of virus particles. And if you just look at the structure of a virus particle after this lecture, you'll be able to tell how it was put together. We are going to learn all the principles by which you put these beautiful structures together. Icosahedral particles with or without an envelope, nucleocapsids, envelopes, glycoproteins, and so forth. So uh, all this will become second nature. All virus particles have to go through a common set of assembly reactions, and they're, they're outlined here. For example, well, first we... We make the protein subunits, right? Uh, and then we make the structural unit from them, from one or several viral proteins. We can make a protein shell. When we're talking about an icosahedral particle, we make a shell, of course. At some point, we have to package the nucleic acid genome into the particle. And that would involve also making sure the genome is bound with whatever proteins it's destined to be come to bound with like the nuclear proteins and at that point many viruses are finished and they least they re are released from the host cell in some cases virus particles mature actually outside of the host cell they don't all mature within the cell likewise some viruses uh, particles acquire an envelope and then they're released from the host cell we'll see that process today but again uh, some viruses mature outside of the host cell and then of course they have to go on to infect the new cell so we're going to think about this today for both uh, enveloped and non-enveloped particles. We're going to look at the assembly reactions, where they happen in the cell, and how virus particles get out at the end. Like every other part of the reproduction cycle of viruses, assembly depends, of course, on host cell machinery. Many, many parts of the cell have already gone into making the components, the nucleic acids and the proteins, but to get them all together requires even more chaperones, these are cellular proteins that assist in folding reactions. We'll look at some examples of that today. Transport systems. Uh, you know, we've talked about how particles move in the cell by transport on microtubules, but they also move out on microtubules. No, there's no diffusion at either end of the reproduction cycle. The secretory pathway is essential for moving glycoproteins around, as we'll see, and of course the import and export machinery. Not only do genomes have to get into the nucleus for some viruses, as we've already talked about, but the proteins to make the particles have to be imported as well. And then they have to get out. So we'll talk about that today. And I want to remind you that moving in heavy traffic needs assistance. Things do not diffuse. And we have talked about mainly long distance movement on microtubules, motor proteins, on cytoskeletal tracts, and, you know, the virus particles can move from the plasma membrane all the way to the nucleus on such tracks. But there's also short distance energy dependent pores that move components, nuclear pores, for example, and others. And this is on the right in experiment uh, in which we are demonstrating uh, the role of the cytoskeletal tracts in transport. So this is a cell infected with fascicular stomatitis virus both the top and the bottom. And on the top, uh, the cell is stained three ways. Of course, the nucleus is stained with DAPI, which is a dye that stains the DNA blue. And we do that often so we can delineate the nucleus. And then the microtubule network is 
stained with an antibody to tubulin, and that's the red. And you can see the wonderful network of tracks on which things move. And then the nuclear protein of VSV is stained in uh, kind of greenish yellow, I suppose. It's, it's yellow. It's probably merging with the red. And you can see the nuclear protein is diffuse in the cytoplasm. And of course, it is all over the cytoplasm because that's where uh, it's associating with the viral RNA. This is a cytoplasmic virus. On the bottom, this infected cell, of course, both cells are infected. The one on the bottom has been pretreated with a drug called nacodazole. Nacodazole is a drug that depolymerizes tubulin. It disrupts the microtubule network. And you can see there are no more nice tracks on the bottom. The tracks have been disrupted. And now the nuclear protein in yellow gets stuck. It can't move around the cytoplasm. So that just shows very dramatically the necessity for movement on uh, cytoskeletal tracts within the cell. I always like to say that nothing happens fast in dilute solutions. The same goes for virus assembly. In fact, for most viruses, the components are often concentrated in areas of the cell, and we call them factories or inclusion bodies. And you can see these by the light microscope. So for example, on the left, we have an, an electron micrograph of a poliovirus infected cell. And this illustrates how you can concentrate proteins on membranes. And we will get, we've already talked about this a bit uh, when we have discussed RNA synthesis, and we'll come back to it later. But these round structures, <clears throat> these are double membrane vesicles that are assembled in virus infected cell. They're induced by viral proteins. Virus reproduces its RNA on their surfaces. And we think it's a way of concentrating all the components in one place. The little dots, by the way, are newly assembled poliovirus particles. Another example is shown here on the right. Uh, this is a, a neuron infected with rabies virus, and it has in it what are called Negri bodies. Negri was an Italian pathologist. You know, a lot of Italians were uh, microscopists, and they had things named after them. Golgi was another one. So Negri bodies are these round, reddish structures in, in the cytoplasm of this cell. Uh, the nucleus is in the middle here, and it doesn't look very good. It's shrunken. But the, uh, the these red circles in the cytoplasm, these are Negri bodies. That's where RNA and nuclear protein of the virus is assembling. So things don't just happen scattered all over the cell. They happen in concentrated areas. And so that reactions can proceed quicker. Viral proteins also have addresses, right? We've mentioned this before. And they have here, I've got four of them listed. Membrane targeting addresses like signal sequences that target proteins to the secretory pathway. We'll look at this today. But there's also fatty acid modification uh, where you add a fatty acid to a protein and that makes it hydrophobic and that can stick it in a membrane as well. There are membrane retention signals. We want certain proteins, say, not to go to the plasma membrane, but to stay in the endoplasmic reticulum because that's where the virus is going to bud from. And so those signals keep it in there. There are, of course, nuclear localization signals, NLSs, that we've talked about before, and they're, again, shown here. Here's the SV40T antigen NLS. You know, it's just a short hydrophobic sequence here uh, that interacts with the nuclear import machinery. And then and there are also export signals as well. 
to get proteins out of the nucleus. We'll see how these come into play today. So here's an example of localization of viral proteins to the nucleus. This is a cell that is not really infected because there are too many different viruses in it, but we have examples of how viral proteins get in the nucleus. Influenza virus nuclear protein, of course, synthesized in the cytoplasm, as all proteins are. That needs to get into the nucleus because that is where influenza viral RNAs are, are made. It's unusual for an RNA virus. Uh, and so the nuclear protein needs to get in there because of that, of course, will bind to the RNA. And the nuclear protein also has an export sequence to get it back out. Here we have uh, a polyomavirus structural unit. Uh, five copies of VP1 forming a pentamer are going into the nucleus to become a capsid and get, a, get the viral DNA there. And they have an import sequence in them. The adenovirus structural subunit, the hexon, is getting imported into the nucleus by a nuclear import signal. And here also the parvovirus uh, VP2 trimer, the subunit of the capsid goes in and it's going to eventually pick up the single-stranded DNA genome. So import signals to get in, then of course they'll have to get out again. Here is an example of how we get proteins to the plasma membrane. Now, as you'll see in a bit, many envelope viruses bud from the plasma membrane. And it's a word that if I grabbed someone on the street and said, do you know about virus budding? They would probably not have any idea what I was talking about because it's really colloquial, right? <laughs> but the formation of virus particles uh, where they acquire an envelope is we call budding. Uh, here, the proteins that are going to get into the envelope, remember, all viral envelopes have proteins in them, viral proteins. Those are initially made in the endoplasmic reticulum. And the proteins are made on the rough ER. The ribosome is bound to the ER. The protein goes into the lumen. As you can see here, these red proteins. Then they will be transported to the plasma membrane by the vesicular transport process of the cell. What does that mean? Well, it means simply that this protein in the ER is going to leave in the form of a vesicle that pinches off, which then fuses with the Golgi and passes through the various stacks. And then eventually this last vesicle will move uh, up to the plasma membrane. It will fuse with the plasma membrane. And now those viral glycoproteins are in the plasma membrane. And then uh, the viral genome is shown here getting ready to uh, associate with it and eventually form a particle. We'll look at that later. But again, the microtubule is a, a key component of this. And in fact, there should be a microtubule drawn at the other vesicle because they don't just diffuse around. Another key aspect of virus assembly is sub-assemblies. Think of a car assembly line, right? Where the body is going down the line and people put different parts onto it. Everybody has their own part that they put on. Same thing with a virus assembly. We use sub-assemblies. And this is a beautiful example of the assembly of a bacteriophage. So, you know, the, back, the final bacteriophage has the head, the tail, and the tail fibers. Well, they're all put on separately. Look at the tail made up of many proteins. These numbers are all the names of the individual proteins uh, that go into making the base plate first. And then they add the central canal and then the discs around it and finally you have a tail all assembly line meanwhile the head is being assembled a cosahedral head gets put onto uh, the the tail and then the fibers are also assembled separately and they're put on so you have the formation of discrete intermediates and why does this happen well it's very efficient and allows orderly formation 
of the viruses. You know, the, the car companies didn't invent anything. This was happening in virus-infected cells years before. And uh, this kind of sub-assembly is, is, allows for quality control. I'm not sure that happens in the auto industry because <laughs> we get lemons, right? Um, you cannot, in a virus assembly line, you cannot go ahead unless the previous structure is properly formed. So if you don't make the tail, you're never going to get the final virus particle. So you have quality control assured. Here are three strategies for making sub-assemblies. Uh, the top is from individual protein molecules, right? Here's uh, SV40, which the icosahedral capsid is composed of uh, pentamers, and, and they're associated in five and six-fold series, of course. But here we just take VP1. We make VP1, and five of those will spontaneously assemble to form the pentamer. So individual proteins are translated individually. The alternative is to make a polyprotein precursor. What is a polyprotein precursor? It's a long protein that is translated and cleaved by a protease. So here the example is poliovirus, where the capsid protein is being translated on ribosomes. Here's VP1, VP2, 3, and 4. And um, they're initially translated as a long precursor. And then it folds into the structure that it's going to look like in the virus particle. And then the viral protease, which is produced separately, comes in and cleaves these loops. And this 5S structural unit, that's the structural unit that comes together to form uh, the virus particle. You know, five of those make a pentamer, for example. And finally, we, in all these processes, uh, chaperones are important. Chaperones are other proteins that help assemble proteins, fold them, multimerize, associate in different ways. Here's an example of a, a viral protein that's a chaperone. This L400 kilodome protein assists protein 2 into trimerizing to form the hexon, which is the subunit of the virus particle. So that's an example of a viral chaperone, but viral assembly also depends on cellular chaperones. These are two examples of that. So here is the, the folding pathway for the gag protein of retroviruses. We'll look at this in more detail uh, in a bit. But the gag protein is the precursor to all the structural proteins of the particle, not the enzymes. You know, that, that's in a different part of the protein. This is the structural precursor. And it's cleaved by proteases. But this this trick is a cell protein uh, that's a, basically a chaperone that helps the, the, the gag to fold in the proper way. And what we're looking at here is the assembly pathway of gag. This is a, the line version of gag right here. And then uh, this first illustration is what it actually looks like. It has all the different components, membrane protein, the capsid, the nucleoprotein, and others and these eventually all line up and start to make a curved uh, capsid, if you will. And, the, and this trick is involved in that. And then at the last step, uh, this another cellular chaperone is involved in closing the gap. Polyomavirus, the same thing. Uh, there is a cellular chaperone called HSC70, which assists in the assembly of pentamers to form the virus particle. These are all energy-dependent steps, as you can see. And I just want to point out large T is here. It's also a chaperone for this process. I mean, how many things can this protein do? It's just remarkable. You know, it's involved in transcription, 
DNA replication and now assembly, as you see here. We have two broad ways that virus particles come together. The first is by sequential assembly. We've just touched on this already for the bacteriophage. But for some viruses, this accounts for all of the assembly. And the example here is for poliovirus, uh, where, remember, the, the incoming RNA, it's a plus-stranded RNA. It's translated in, into a polyprotein, which is processed. And I just showed you how the structural unit is processed. It folds and then is cleaved. These um, 5S structural units, five of them come together to form a pentamer. And then these pentamers, we think, associate with genomic RNA uh, to form the what we call a provirion. And then the final cleavage of VP0 to VP2 and 4 occurs, and that gives us the infectious particle. So there are a series of steps that have to occur in the right order. That's why we call it sequential assembly. We make the subunits, they fold, they're cleaved, the subunits assemble into pentamers, and then virions, and then infectious particles. And so the whole production of infectious polioviruses can be accounted for by this sequential assembly line process. Another example of sequential capsid assembly, which illustrates a different principle entirely, is herpes virus. Of course, this is a virus, a DNA virus, where the DNA replicates in the nucleus and the capsid is assembled in the nucleus. Eventually, it will acquire an envelope elsewhere, as you will see. But here's what happens in the nucleus. So here we're in the nucleus in this picture. Here are the nuclear pores, and all the precursors for the capsid are coming in through the nuclear pores, and the, these include pentamers and hexamers, which have already assembled, and a variety of other proteins, including the portal here down at the bottom. Remember, there's one of those in the particle. And these all assemble to form what is called a procapsid. There's no DNA in this yet. The capsid has been formed, but there's a scaffold on the inside called protein scaffold here. And this is really amazing because, you know, if you walk down the street, you see scaffolds on the outside of buildings, right, to help assemble them or replace things. Well, for herpes virus, the, the scaffold's on the inside, and its function is to hold up the, the capsid until the DNA gets in, or at least until the capsid is properly formed. So once this procapsid is assembled, uh, that transmits a signal to VP24, which was brought in down here as a, as a precursor. And VP24 is a, is a protease. It gets activated and it cleaves all of the scaffold, trashes it, and the scaffold, the amino acids get out eventually, and the genomic DNA goes in, which is, then gives us a nucleocapsid. So the scaffolding proteins uh, help maintain the capsid until it's fully assembled and ready to take up the DNA. I think that's a really a cool way to do this. So the scaffolding proteins help to make these intermediates, or the procapsid is an intermediate. And uh, it's the protease, the viral protease. VP24 is a viral protease. It's not active. It's present as a precursor until the scaffold is assembled, and then somehow the signal gets transmitted to cleave the scaffold and uh, get rid of it to, to allow space for the DNA. All right, so that's two examples of sequential assembly. The other example is what we call concerted assembly. And here, some parts of this may be sequential, but the actual particle, the virus particles assemble only in association with the genome. So at the very last part of the cycle, they assemble together. So here's influenza virus. 
where the particles are going to form by budding from the plasma membrane. But let's back up and we're, we're making RNAs in the nucleus. That's where these RNAs are made. The mRNAs go out to the cytosol. They make proteins. The proteins get shipped back in, including nuclear protein and some other proteins. And eventually we have new negative stranded RNAs made in the nucleus associated with proteins. And that's the nuclear protein, of course. Uh, and, you know, the assembly of those is, is in a way sequential. You're adding proteins to the RNA. Uh, one of the proteins, the M1, has an export sequence that gets the whole RNP out of the nucleus. This is small enough to fit through the nuclear pore. It then moves to the plasma membrane by microtubules. Again, that's missing from this picture. But between three and, and four, there must be microtubules here. It doesn't just diffuse. At the same time, the glycoproteins, including the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase, are made in the ER. They're, they're transported up to the plasma membrane in these secretory vesicles, and um, the nuclear protein then binds. And of course, you need eight of these to bind and make an infectious particle. Uh, the whole assembly begins to butt out. The membrane moves out and eventually pinches off. So that's the concerted part, where you have this particle formation at the very end where the RNA genome, the nuclear protein, and the particle form. Concerted effort can think of it that way. So it's a little different from poliovirus where it, it forms in, in a sequential way. Of course, there are aspects of this, as I said, that are sequential, but in the end, the, the budding process gives uh, this a sequential, a, a concerted way of forming. Uh, we had a question about herpes. Does VP24 enter through the portal? No. So these proteins are all assembled, and then the capsid is assembled around it. And the is the protease scaffold specific? Probably not, but it's limited because it's on the inside of the particle here, so it's not a, nothing else for it to cleave. Now, th let's take a look at the hemagglutinin of influenza virus. In this previous slide, I showed you how this is translated into the ER and moves up to the surface. Let's look at that in some detail. So again, the hemagglutinin is shown in, in cartoon form here on the viral particle, influenza virus envelope with eight segments. And the hemagglutinin is one of a, a few glycoproteins in the particle. Uh, there is the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. Then there's an ion channel M2, uh, which we've talked about its role in entry. And uh, the hemagglutinin, of course, is a trimer with a, a fibrous stem and a globular head. And uh, here on the bottom is the structure of the monomer. It's not really a structure. It's just a line diagram. Just to show you how it works, here's the membrane. So there's a transmembrane sequence. There's a part uh, in the cytosol or within the virus particle, the C-terminus. And then if we look out here, the, the uh, signal sequence is at the N-terminus. That's, of course, removed after the protein gets in the ER. And then there are oligosaccharides. So this is a glycoprotein. There are a lot of disulfide bonds to maintain the structure of this protein. And here's the fusion peptide. Remember, the fusion peptide is needed for entry of uh, the virus from the endosome. And here you can see it's buried. And in fact, the N-terminus isn't even free. It has to be cleaved here at this orange arrow by a cell protease, typically. And we'll talk more about this later. And that exposes the N-terminus and eventually low pH will shoot this M-terminus up into the membrane. But when this uh, hemagglutinin is cleaved, the uncleaved part, or the uncleaved version is called HA0, 
And then after the cleavage, we get HA1 and 2. They're held together by a disulfide. See this long yellow line here is a disulfide that holds HA1 to HA2 so it doesn't fall off. Right, so that is what the protein looks like. And it's made in the endoplasmic reticulum. So here's a ribosome with the mRNA for HA. It's gone through into the ER. And here's a close-up view of what it looks like. Transmembrane sequence. This, this red part is in the ER lumen. And then there's a part on the cytosolic side, this other red part, which is actually, the C-terminus is stuck in the membrane by, by virtue of... Uh, um, Acylation, and this this is important for assembly. Now the protein, of course, moves through the Golgi by vesicular transport, and the Golgi is full of enzymes that modify the protein. Uh, this is where the the monomer becomes a trimer and oligomerizes, oligomerizes, becomes glycosylated in various ways, as you can see here as it moves through. And in some cells. Infected with some influenza viruses, the HA may be cleaved here. This doesn't happen with human influenza viruses. We will talk about this later when we, when we talk about how these viruses cause disease. And so here's a cleaved HA, HA1 and 2, the disulfide holding the two together. And then, of course, these, these, this protein would get to the plasma membrane. First question is, subassemblies are involved in which of the following types of virus particle production? It's a Socrative.com, and the room number, the room name is virus. What was the role of the ion channel? The ion channel allows protons into the interior of the particle. As the virus is going through the endocytic pathway, the pH is dropping by virtue of protons being pumped into the endosome. Then they get into the virus particles through the channel. And that allows the eventually the RNP to come out once the membranes fuse. How did we do? Got all of the above. That's right. Subassemblies are involved. Which of the following types of virus particle production? Concerted assembly, sequential assembly lines, chaperone assisted, all of the above. Subassemblies are involved in all of these aspects. Now, when you make a particle, one of the key aspects of making it is to make sure only the viral genome gets in and not cellular nucleic acids. That would be a waste, right? So this is called genome packaging. When I say genome packaging, I'm talking about getting only the viral genome into the cell. And how do you distinguish it from cellular DNA or RNA molecules? Wherever the assembly is taking place, how do you distinguish it? The solution is packaging signals, which are sequences in the viral genome. All right, so the process is genome packaging. It's directed by signals in the genome. They're not protein signals. They're nucleic acid signals, of course, because they're in the, the viral genome. So let's take a look at some DNA and RNA uh, packaging signals. Here we have two DNA viruses, adenovirus and SV40. Look at adeno on the top. Here, here's the packaging sequence. There's actually a bunch of them. There a set of repeated sequences here near the left end. So here's the left end of the genome. And um, there's the inverted terminal repeat, of which there's one at the other end. There's an origin of replication at the left end. Here on the right is the early region, immediate early promoter for the E1A, essential E1A protein. Here are some enhancers for the E1A promoter. The promoter, of course, shown by the red arrow. 
So again, the origin, the early transcription unit packaging sequences, they're all mixed up together, very close. You see, this is 500 bases from the left to the right, base pairs. So this packaging sequence um, enables just adenovirus DNA to get in to the capsid because this, the packaging sequences are not present on cellular DNA. They are unique to the virus, and so only viral DNA gets Incorporated, how does it work? Well, these sequences are recognized by a viral protein called 4A2. And in the case of adenovirus, you first make an empty particle, and then the DNA gets threaded into it. And the threading of DNA will only happen if the, the, the packaging signal is, is recognized by 4A2. Without 4A2, the DNA does not get into the capsid. The exact mechanism is not known. So that's what a packaging signal is. It somehow interacts with the packaging machinery to get the DNA or RNA, as we'll see, into the capsid. The next one here is SV40. Again, uh, this is the origin of replication at base one or 5,243. Remember, it's a circular genome. And here we have the early transcription unit. Uh, we have the enhancer for that. And here is the, the packaging signal. Uh, within this region, these purple boxes. Again, repeated sequences that allow the DNA and only the viral DNA to interact and get put into the capsid. So that's a packaging sequence. Now, the herpes virus packaging is unique, and I want to tell you about this. And uh, it involves uh, packaging sequences, but also some other interesting activities. So remember, the herpes genome is reproduced or replicated by a rolling circle mechanism that makes concatomers, right? Concatomers simply mean, remember toilet paper. Each of these is a sheet of toilet paper. Rolling off each sheet is a, a genome of herpes simplex virus that you need to put in the capsid. It's actually the, the concatomer that starts to go in the capsid. It's not cut before it goes into the capsid. You start to thread it in and then when, it's, when the capsid is full, then you cut it. So let's see how that works. Here's the viral genome at, in A. And at the left end, we've expanded it. And here are the packaging sequences, PAC1 and PAC2. PAC stands for packaging. And there are also some sequences around it called DR1 and DR2, right? So the PAC1 and 2 are needed for recognition of the DNA by the capsid. And then the DNA is then cleaved within DR1. And you'll see how that happens now. So here on the right is how the packaging works. So there's an empty capsid, the, the brown icosahedron there. Remember, this is assembled in the nucleus and the internal scaffold is gone. There's your portal. And the portal is, is multifunctional. It lets viral DNA get out when the virus infects the cell. And now it's going to let DNA get in to new particles. The DNA that's been made by rolling circle is recognized by the portal, plus uh, a few other proteins that are associated with the portal. So the portal is there in gray. Then we have the green, the red, and the white proteins. Uh, these all recognize the packaging sequences, PAC1 and PAC2. And so now you this concatomer where you're going to have multiple of these PAC-DR sequences. So there's one, there's another one, and all the way as long as this goes... One of these is recognized by the portal. Portal, one of these proteins associated with the portal is actually uh, a, a motor that winds in the DNA. It pulls it in. It's like a ratchet. 
all right? It's pulling it in as an ATP-dependent mechanism, and it pulls it into the capsid. So you need energy to do this. So the DNA is recognized as viral by virtue of these PAC sequences, and then the portal starts to wind it in here. And you can see it's filling up. And how does it know when to stop? When it encounters another packaging sequence, because there'll be another one at the beginning of the next concatamer, right? Because the packaging sequence is just here at the left end. And so when it reaches that other packaging sequence, you can see here in step three, then there is a nuclease associated with the portal that cuts it. So now inside the capsid is a head full of DNA. It's a, it's a, a complete genome. And then the, uh, the other, the DNA that's outside, um, we have now the packaging area right there, and that can go into another capsid. And then that will be pulled in. And so your concatamers are pulled in genome full by genome full, one at a time, by this unique mechanism where the sequence is recognized, the genome is wound in, and then the packaging signal is cut. And this DNA is under very, very high pressure. Hundreds of pounds per square inch. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that these capsids don't explode because as you know when that portal docks onto the nuclear pore out comes the dna using the pressure that was built up during this uh, pumping process and many many other viruses including bacteriophages do the same thing cool a very cool process rna viruses also have packaging signals here is an example from the retroviruses uh, this this is HIV-1. So here we're looking at the left end of the genome. And uh, very first base there is plus one. And you may recognize PBS. It's not a television station. It's the primer binding site. And that's where the tRNA primer for reverse transcription binds, right? And moving down a little, there's this structured region here with a couple of stem loops. And this... Stem loop one has this red sequence, which will base pair with the same stem loop on another RNA. And that's how this kissing loop interaction. So these are loops from two different viral RNAs. A base pair, and that's what pulls a dimer into the particle. Also within this region is the packaging sequence. And it's shown by the Greek letter psi. And um, this is a region that's needed for packaging the RNA into the particle. And this this region, this is actually not enough for packaging. There are other sequences that are needed as well, but this is a very important component. And so in the end, uh, the, you have two, two RNAs, which are going to be brought into the particle. And we'll take a look at this in more detail in a moment. And then they're going to interact with the structural protein, the gag precursor, which are all these colorful proteins here. Uh, each interacting with the packaging sequence. And you'll see how that pulls the, these RNAs into the particle in a moment. But I want to show you the, the gag protein here on the top. The, the gag is a precursor to matrix, capsid, and nucleocapsid. And then there's, there's another protein at the end here, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, the nucleocapsid is the RNA binding protein, which will interact with the packaging sequence. And the capsid, of course, is going to form the capsid. The nucleocapsid part expanded below here has regions that are that are needed for packaging and which bind RNA specifically. So the idea is that these uh, regions of the nucleocapsid uh, are binding this, this packaging sequence and bringing it into the particle. So 
we're going to see how that happens in a moment. So, so far we've talked about genomes with one nucleic acid piece, monopartite. What about segmented genomes? How do they get packaged? Is it random or are there signals? Well, actually, if you did the math and you said, okay, let's take influenza virus. They have eight segments. If you just had a random mechanism for grabbing eight segments, it would actually give you an infectious particle per 400 assembled. If you just said, okay, grab eight RNAs from the pool in the cell, well, one in a 400 would work. They'd be, have the right eight, which is in the vicinity of the particle to P of U ratio of this virus, actually. So that wouldn't be a bad mechanism. However, it turns out there is a specific packaging sequence on each RNA segment. And so it's not just random. Although for many years we thought it would be because, because it fit with the particle to PFU ratio. But I guess the moral is don't be misled by what looks right. Keep looking. So here's how influenza virus packaging works. First of all, you know each particle has eight RNA segments. And if you do sections in electron micrograph, these RNAs are always oriented in the same way in the particle. Look, you can see here there's they're cut in half, right? And they're they're parallel to one another. They're not oriented in all which ways. And in fact, when they bud, here's the budding process going on here. These segments are always perpendicular to the budding tip, like is shown here. They're parallel and they're perpendicular to the bud tip. So it turns out that this arrangement is dictated by sequences at the ends of the RNA segments. Here are the eight RNA segments of influenza virus. And these are the proteins encoded in each one. You can see uh, here's the HA segment, for example, hemagglutinin. And in blue are these sequences at the end. They're the packaging sequences. And we think that these sequences interact RNA, RNA. So RNAs interact with each other, and that would get the right eight RNAs into the particle. And they also interact with proteins, viral proteins. And you can actually swap them. In one experiment, the HA and the NS signals were swapped. In other words, you take the 9 and the 80, and you put it on the NS, and then you take the 35 and the 35 and put it on the HA, and that works fine. So they're not specific through each segment. You can get, as long as you have all the right signals there, it'll, it'll still work. So... There are specific packaging signals. They're very, the precise mechanisms are not yet worked out, but it's not a random assembly mechanism. And finally, there is an example in an RNA virus of what we call selective packaging. This is very cool. This is a bacteriophage. It's called Phi6. And um, it is a double-stranded RNA containing bacteriophage. It has three double-stranded RNA segments, a small one, a medium-sized one, and a large one. And it has like, it's very much like a Rio virus. It has two concentric capsids, an outer and an inner capsid. This virus exhibits selective packaging. What does that mean? Well, the first segment to go in is the small one, always. We don't know how that works, but it always goes in first. And then only if S is in, will M go in. M will not go in unless S is present, and L will go in only if M is present. That's what we call serial dependence of packaging. It gives an order to it, S, M, L, and apparently that works because the particle to PFU ratio of this virus is one. 
every particle that is made is infectious. That's amazing. Not many viruses are like that. And maybe the packaging has a lot to do with it. Maybe for you know other viruses, the packaging is not serial dependent, selective packaging, and, and you make a lot of particles with the wrong segments. I think that's probably partially explaining this, this weird particle to PFU ratio of many viruses. Packaging signals for monopartite and segmented genomes, and then we have selective packaging. Next question is packaging signals on viral blank interact with viral blank during virus assembly. And you can fill in the blank with lipids, proteins, protein subassemblies, genomes, proteins, proteases, membranes, proteins, genomes. Right, we seem to be frozen at 27. Let's see how we did here. Yes, most of you got the right answer. You say packaging signals on viral genomes interact with viral proteins during virus assembly. So the packaging signal is on the genome. It is not a protein, which, uh, you know, that's B and E. So the packaging signal is not on the protein. Remember that, okay? That's not intuitive, but the packaging sequence, look at it as a packaging sequence instead of a signal. And maybe that uh, that will help. Now, the last step in many virus assembly uh, procedures is the acquisition of an envelope or a membrane. And most of the time this happens after the internal structures have been assembled. And we've given an example for influenza virus. I'll come back to that and show it to you again in a moment. But for retroviruses, uh, it is simultaneous with the, the assemble, assembly of internal structures. You'll see what I mean by that in a moment. The, the final maturation actually occurs after uh, the, the budding. And what drives budding? Well, one thing that drives budding, of course, are viral proteins. And in some cases, um, it's the envelope and the capsid which drive budding. So if you just make the capsid and envelope proteins in a cell, they will make buds, even though there's no genome in them. Sometimes the matrix protein. So we haven't talked about what a matrix protein is, M or matrix. Many of these envelope viruses have them. Influenza viruses, retroviruses, uh, VSV. It is a protein that uh, lines just below the membrane. It gives it some stability. Otherwise, it would just be a floppy membrane. So that that can drive budding or the capsid protein can drive budding. And this is really a, a unique one. For some viruses, the envelope proteins alone will drive the formation of buds. So for example, influenza viruses, if you just produce the HA protein in a cell, it will make particles. The particles have just HA, there's nothing in them. Well, there's something from the cytosol probably, but no viral RNA. And that's actually a way to make uh, influenza virus HA-based vaccines. You can actually do that in plants very cheaply, as we'll see, and make a lot of vaccine at low cost and very quickly, just based on this part on this property that the protein is enough to drive a bud. And then here we have another category where the matrix proteins will drive budding, but sometimes efficiency and accuracy depends on glycoproteins and even the RNA. But most of the time, it's proteins that drives the budding, not the genome of the virus. So let's see some examples of how this works. Here's influenza virus budding. And again, this is an example of concerted assembly. The, we have 
two separate parts assembled, the internal structure, the RNP is made, and then uh, this all makes a particle at the end, the concerted part. So the, the RNP is, is made in the nucleus, gets transported to the plasma membrane, and there the glycoproteins have been inserted, the HA, the NA, the uh, ion channel, the M ion channel, uh, and then the HA actually for influenza virus drives the budding. The particle forms and pinches off. And the pinching part, we'll explore in a moment how that happens. And now you have a new infectious virus. So this is budding at the plasma membrane. And you can see the blue is actually the uh, the M protein, the M1 protein that's forming this shell, which will eventually be under the membrane. Uh, that That is actually part of the, the ribonucleic protein, those larger blue Proteins are actually the same as those smaller ones there. All right, so that's influenza virus. Now, here, how does the RNP know where to go? If RNPs can know anything, of course they cannot, but how, do, how are they directed to where they need to go? And that depends on what we call membrane targeting sequences. Now, you, when you hear membrane targeting sequence, you're probably thinking of signal sequence, but the signal sequence is only one way to get a protein to a membrane. Other, another way is a hydrophobic region, and the influenza virus M1 protein has such a, a sequence. Now, here is a line diagram of the M1 protein, and here is on the top here, there's the RNP. It's bound, the polymerase is at the left, the three subunits, and then the, there's a couple of molecules of M1, the blue rectangles. So they will bind the RNA, and they will, they actually have hydrophobic regions at their end terminus. And that's what gets the RNP to the plasma membrane. Otherwise, presumably, it would just be floating around aimlessly in the cytoplasm once it got off the tracks of the microtubules. So here we have hydrophobic regions that are essential for membrane binding. You could, a couple of other things that are worth looking at, uh, the nuclear export sequence, that's how it gets out of the nucleus. It brings this whole complex, this whole RNP out of the nucleus via this NES. And there's also a nuclear localization signal which of course is needed to get this protein into the nucleus before it even associates with the RNA. And then this part of the protein is needed to bind to the RNP. The RNP, of course, consists of RNA plus the NP protein. So here is what directs the M1 to the RNA. And then here is what directs the M1 stuck on the RNP to the plasma membrane. That's how it gets there. Other viruses have similar features. Here's the M protein of VSV. Again, the M protein is the blue protein shell beneath the membrane that gives some structure, some integrity to the final particle. VSV uh, has a hydrophobic region at the end terminus, which is needed for membrane binding and for binding to the RNP. So it's not separate as it is for the influenza uh, virus protein, and also there's a, a central hydrophobic region as well. So again, the M protein is directed to the plasma membrane, in the case of VSV, by similar sequences. Let's take a look at the retrovirus budding process. This has been quite well worked out, and it's very instructive. So remember, the RNAs are made in the nucleus by transcription of the provirus, the integrated viral DNA, by cellular PAL2. So those RNAs come out into the cytoplasm, two of them attached to one another by the kissing loop interactions. And then the packaging sequence binds the nucleocapsid 
specifically, the nucleocapsid NC protein, the yellow protein, there's a part of NC that binds the RNA. So now you have uh, in the cytoplasm this complex of, of RNAs and, and a few of copies of, well, two copies of this precursor. So the precursor is made, this is the gag precursor right here, matrix, capsid, nucleocapsid, and then here P6. It's made as a precursor. And here's the precursor, not cleaved yet. It's not going to be cleaved until later. The precursor is what attaches to the RNA. And then the RNA precursor, gag precursor, goes to the plasma membrane. We'll see how it does that in a moment. And sticks to the plasma membrane. And then more precursors come. So we only need two RNAs, right? Then the rest of them are just precursors, gag precursors by themselves. It's this arrow right here. Before you start to form this nice crescent here and it starts to bud out and you add more gag proteins until eventually the, the particle pinches off. And now you have a nice capsid inside where you've got matrix, the blue protein. It's originally here at the end terminus. Uh, then the next is capsid, the red protein that forms the icosahedral shell. And then nucleocapsid and a few of those are binding RNA. That's how the particle initially is formed. And then a few of these uh, gag precursors are actually the gag pol. Remember, the next gene alongside here is the polymerase gene, which causes the RT and the RNASH and the integrase. And here it is, RT and integrase. And that gets made as a fusion protein with the gag. It's not cleaved. So we have gag and pol. And in, in between is the protease cleaving enzyme is the protease, which is going to cleave all of this eventually. So a few of these get incorporated, and that brings in RT and integrase, which you need. So they're the blue and the orange. Look, there are a couple of them in there. And look at the particle comes off now, and you've got RNA, you've got all the right proteins, you've got RT, and you have integrase. Then it matures. That protease becomes active at this part. Only when it's released, cleaves the gag precursor into Matrix, now look, matrix is now on its own, right? It's no longer attached to capsid. Capsid, it's on its own. Nucleocapsid is, is on its own. And now, you know, all this, the RNA is now coated with nucleocapsid. So it, all nucleocapsid has been cleaved off from the precursor, so it doesn't have to just uh, lie along it, as, as we saw earlier. So a really brilliant, beautiful, I should say, not brilliant, beautiful series of reactions to pull the RNA, the, pr the right proteins in, and remember, all the proteins are being pulled in by NC, binding specifically to the packaging sequence on the RNA. And then this matures after it leaves the cell. Okay, so that's how that works. And we're going to come back to this in a moment. But first, let's take a look at uh, GAG. Now, here's the uh, GAG protein precursor again. Matrix, capsid, nucleocapsid. And here's the, the previous slide made small up here for reference. It's just here's matrix. Matrix is expanded below. It's got a hydrophobic region here in blue, but its end terminus is meristylated. Meristate is a lipid, and it's covalently linked to this amino acid at the end terminus, and that makes it even more hydrophobic. That's what brings GAG to the plasma membrane, this hydrophobic sequence plus the, um, the lipid. And meristate is one of many different lipids that can be attached to proteins to make them target membranes. So matrix sends it to the plasma membrane. 
Here's nucleocapsid again. Remember, specific RNA binding part of nucleocapsid, it binds the packaging sequence. So this is all amazing. The matrix, and it's all connected, right? Because the gag is still one protein. The matrix is sticking in the plasma membrane, is dragging RNA along by virtue of interacting with NC. MERS state is very important for this process because if you take away the amino acid that it's normally linked to, then gag will never make it to the plasma membrane. You never get budding. So you completely inhibit particle formation by inhibiting meristillation. Now, meristillation is done by cellular enzymes, not by viral enzymes. It's a lipid that's present in the cell and has many cellular functions. So you can't simply inhibit it as, being, as a way of being an antiviral. But this demonstrates that meristillation is crucial uh, for formation of the virus particles. Here's meristate. So the protein is at the bottom and there's a specific sequence uh, that is a meristillation, so it doesn't get attached just anywhere. It, it's linked to a glycine, but there has to be a signal uh, right, very close to it. So there's the glycine. And then we have three amino acids, then uh, any of these amino acids, the rest of the protein. That's a meristillation signal. So that's a lipid. As you can see, it, it's added to the protein, allows targeting to membranes. And you don't need a signal sequence. This works without a signal sequence. So this is for proteins that are made in the cytoplasm. And you want to target them to membrane. So signal sequence works in the ER. It gets proteins to the ER. But in the ER, it's cleaved off. The signal sequence is removed. And anyway, those proteins go to the plasma membrane. What if you have a cytosolic protein that you want to get to the cytosolic face of the plasma membrane? You put meristate on it. Or you could just make the protein hydrophobic, as we have seen for the influenza and VSV uh, solutions. So state is very important for retrovirus uh, assembly. I, I promised to tell you how the, the bud pinches off from the cell, and here's how it works. It started many years ago when people were studying the gag proteins of retrovirus. So here's HIV-1 gag and a murine leukemia virus, another retrovirus. That's the gag from that virus. So these all have matrix. They have capsid and nucleocapsid. But they have this extra protein for HIV, P6, it's at the C-terminus. For, for MLV, it's P12, it's kind of in the middle. So what do you do if you have a protein or part of a protein, you want to know what it does. You make mutations in the, the gene that codes for it. We call that wreck and check, okay? You wreck the sequence and you see, you check the phenotype of the virus. And so they, they started wrecking and checking P6 and P12, Making single amino acid changes, a common thing to do is to go down the sequence and change every amino acid to alanine. Alanine is like milk toast amino acid. It does just plain, bland, vanilla, boring, and you can substitute for that and you usually mess up the sequence, the function of a protein. And what they found when they made these amino acid changes in either P6 or P12, the budding was arrested at a late stage. They got these viruses still attached to the cell by these stalks. See these particles? These are virus particles, almost done, but they're still attached to the cell. Here's the cell down here. They're tethered, see? All, all because you make amino acid changes in P6 or P12. So they call these late domains because they had an effect at a late stage of infection. They found them in many viruses that were enveloped, whether plus or minus strand. Turned out that many viruses had sequences that if changed would cause this arrest in budding. And what was eventually figured out was that these 
late domains, P6, P12, they bind cell proteins that are needed for vesicle trafficking. And they bind components of the escort pathway, which are shown here. So the P6 domain of HIV binds all these escort components, escort one, alix, and so forth. Uh, MLVP12 binds NED4. So what are these proteins? What is escort? What does this do? Is what escort stands for. Endosomal sorting complex is re required for transport. It's a big, complicated machinery in the cell that's needed for membrane activity. For example, when cells divide by mitosis, they help pinch off that final bit of membrane. It's a little escort protein here that gets in there and breaks the membranes apart. Uh, in the cell, membranes form all the time. Um, for example, these multivesicular bodies form by membranes budding into this bigger membrane. They're pinched off by the escort pathway. So the escort pathway is this little spring here. Exosomes are made by the escort pathway. So viral proteins, P6, P12, and many others have come to, to bind components of the escort pathway and pull them to where the bud is forming and help they help pinch off the bud, basically. So it's a natural activity of the escort proteins to pinch off membranes like this. And so viral budding is just an, a, a stealing of that activity, exaption, if you will. So here the bud is forming, the escort proteins are all involved, escort one, Alex. So the, the Alex and the escort one are interacting with the viral protein that brings the rest of the machinery here. Otherwise, the escort machinery wouldn't be there. Why would it be? It's brought there by these interactions and then the membrane is pinched and the particle goes off. And in fact, there are some escort components left in the particle as a consequence. So that's how these uh, viruses bud from the cell surface, by stealing basically the escort pathway. Now, we have talked about um, viruses budding from the plasma membrane, but they can bud from elsewhere. They can bud actually from the nuclear membrane, from the ER. Look at these viruses, herpes viruses budding from the nuclear membrane, coronavirus, flaviviruses, and others from the ER, some bud from the Golgi, and of course, some bud from the plasma membrane. So any membrane works, but it's always, for a given virus, it's always the same membrane. You don't mix and match, all right? So how does this work? Let's take a look for coronaviruses. Um, we have talked about their genome replication, their mRNA synthesis, at some point, you know, you're making the glycoproteins in the ER and they get shuttled through the Golgi. This is the ER-Golgi intermediate compartments between the ER and the Golgi. So now we have viral glycoproteins there. And the nucleocapsid is assembled in the cytoplasm. It's a plus-stranded genome plus the nucleocapsid protein. And that simply attaches to the outside surface of the ergic where the viral glycoproteins are. It buds inside. And now we have a a virus particle inside of the ergic, it leaves in the, in the form of this vesicle. So it's brought to this plasma membrane by vesicular transport. That's what this is called. So the, the, the budding doesn't occur at the plasma membrane. It occurs in the ergic, essentially. And then the virus particles are brought up and released as this vesicle fuses with the plasma membrane, which is a normal part of the vesicular transport pathway. All right, our last question is, which statement about viral budding is incorrect uh, a, the um, envelope can be acquired before or simultaneous with assembly of internal components. B, the viral spike glycoprotein can drive budding 
C, no host proteins are involved in the budding process. D, lipids assist structural proteins to interact with the membrane. E, the viral membrane can be acquired from the nucleus. E, R, Golgi, or plasma membrane. So which is wrong? Can you restate the difference between sequential and concerted? So sequential, you it's like an assembly line. Think of a car being put together, right? You're adding parts in a sequence. Polioviruses like that. You add a subunit to pentamer to virus particle. You do a series of cleavages and you get the final virus. Concerted is when the genome and the particle form together. So for influenza virus, you make the genome, you bring it to the plasma membrane, and then you make a particle. So that last step, the formation of the particle is concerted because at the same time you're making, you're putting the RNA into the particle. That's the difference. What do we have here? Most of you got no host proteins are involved. That's right. Always are host proteins involved in every aspect of virus reproduction. The envelope can be acquired before or simultaneous with assembly. So for before uh, assembly uh, would be the retrovirus. So the you get all the components, but then you actually do the final assembly once the bud is formed, and then the influenza viruses is simultaneous with. So that's not wrong. The viral membrane can be acquired from the nucleus ER or Golgi. That's that's okay. We can get it from uh, anywhere. Let's talk about how herpes gets out. This is just crazy. Herpes viruses are crazy. You know, not only are they with you forever, but I mean the 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 packaging. That's amazing. The, the internal scaffold. Now look at this. This is just incredible. Here's the nucleus on the left. The nucleocapsids formed in the nucleus, right? So the genome replicates in the nucleus by concatamers. Then the capsid is formed. The genome goes in by that mechanism we talked about. And then it buds out of the nuclear membrane. So that's this first step here. We now have a enveloped particle uh, in the ER. And it's got a, it's got all these little proteins in it. See these little dots uh, those are a variety of proteins, including VP16, which is need for the viral promoters to work in cells. But what happens is this particle fuses with the ER membrane. It loses its membrane. So now you have nucleocapsid in the cytoplasm. Not good. Not good. So this buds into the trans-Golgi, sort of like coronaviruses, right? It acquires a membrane, keeps its tegument. Now it's got lots of uh, glycoproteins. What is it going to do? Is it going to fuse again? No, that would be dumb because it would end up as a nucleocapsid in the cytoplasm. So fortunately, it, it leaves via this vesicular transport pathway, just like the coronas do. And now you have a particle in a vesicle which goes up to the surface. Does this diffuse to the surface, folks? Does it just diffuse up? No, it's on microtubules, of course. There's no diffusion. And it's just not shown here. This membrane fuses and out comes herpes virus. And these are pictures, EMs, at every step to show you what's really happening. It's really cool. So this envelope, this membrane, is derived from the trans-Golgi network, see? Even though it got the first one from the nuclear membrane, it, it threw it out, didn't like it. Another thing that happens during uh, maturation, really interesting, for the flaviviruses. You may remember the flaviviruses, glycoproteins are flat on the surface of the particle. They're not sticking up like the influenza HA. They're not perpendicular. They're flat. In fact, here's the mature virus particle. Here's how that happens. Really interesting. So the, the RNA of these flaviviruses like dengue, West Nile, and many others, Zika, they're, they're made uh, in the um, ER and 
the particles are assembled in the ER. So there's the um, icosahedral capsid. Actually, it's got glycoproteins in it. It's got a membrane, which is acquired by budding into the ER. And now this is transported up through the trans-Golgi network. And the, the pH drops as you go through this network. See, it's 7.2 in the ER. And then uh, close to the ER in the TGN, it's 6.7, then it's 6, and then it's 5.7. So the pH is dropping. What does that do? Amazing. It helps the virus mature. So here is the immature particle in the ER. The glycoproteins, the three of them here in gray, are sticking up. It's not good. You don't want them sticking up. You want them flat. And the red is the fusion peptide, which right now is blocked by this blue protein, PRM, so that it doesn't just fuse throughout the TGN, right? Got to block it. As the pH drops, the protein sits down, right? It's going from here in the ER to the transgolgi. It's sitting down because of the low pH. In addition, there's a, there are proteases in the transgolgi furins that cleave PRM. doesn't fall off yet. And then the mature virus particle comes out here as these vesicles fuse. And now it's neutral in the environment of the cell, extracellular environment. And now the PR fall off. So now the, the fusion peptide's hidden because of the flattening of these glycoproteins. And we don't need the PR anymore. So maturation continues in this, in this sequence. That's the point I'm trying to make is it's not just being transported up. For many viruses, things are happening like cleavage and conformational changes that get ready for um, infectivity. All right, last thing we talk about is leaving the cell. A couple of different interesting ways. Vaccinia virus, a pox virus, does it very unusually. They're propelled from one cell to another on tails made of actin. The way this happens is these, these particles are made in the cell, these IEVs, intracellular envelope virions. They're transported up to the plasma membrane where they fuse and they lose the outer membrane. Now they're a cell-associated envelope virion, but they don't leave the cell. They stay on the surface and they bind this receptor X, which initiates a signaling pathway, a cascade of phosphorylation that triggers actin polymerization and takes that virus and shoves it into the next cell. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Just shoves, get out of here. I don't want you. You're 18, leave. Leave my home. And here is a fluorescence photograph of a of these projections on a cell. They're green and the little red are the virus particles at the tips being shoved. Here's an electron micrograph. This is the actin filament uh, projection and there's a, a virus particle at the end. So this is kind of unusual. You know, the pox viruses do that, but other viruses don't. Uh, as I've shown you, many viruses bud from cells and that's how they leave. They can leave from the from the apical surface of an epithelial cell, which is what I'm, I'm showing you here. They can actually go from cell to cell. If they are fusogenic, they can fuse from cell to cell, or they can do a little bit of both. In general, envelope viruses, as we have seen, can leave by budding or by being released in a vesicle of some kind, the coronas and the herpes viruses. What about non-envelope viruses? How do they leave the cell? Well, here's poliovirus. It's killing the cell. It's lysing it. So obviously, lysis is a way for non-envelope viruses to get out of cells. Lysis is caused by apoptosis, by necroptosis, programmed cell death induced by replication. There are also a variety of viral proteins that induce the rupture of cell membranes. They're called viroporins. They make pores, and that's how some viruses uh, get out. Many viruses inhibit protein synthesis, causing a lack or a loss of membrane integrity, and that lets the viruses out as well. So 
this whole process of cells dying and falling apart, that releases the particles. But there's also a role for non-lytic release of non-enveloped viruses. For example, here is a cell infected with uh, poliovirus. And in these cells, the viral proteins induce the formation of double membrane vesicles. And on the surface of those is where the RNA is replicated and where new particles are assembled. These are uh, thought to be formed by autophagy. Autophagy is a process by which the cell reacts to a stress and begins to uh, make these vesicles and basically throw stuff out so that another cell can use it, you know, proteins and amino acids and cofactors and so forth. Before I die, I'm going to give you what you may use. So that's what autophagy is doing. And late in this process, some particles can be incorporated into those autophagosomes and be released. It's a non-lytic process. These are membrane fusion events. It's also been clear that some non-enveloped particles can be released by it within exosomes. So as you know, all cells make exosomes. They are vesicles released from multivesicular bodies. They're released at the plasma membrane. They contain RNAs and proteins and, other, and DNAs, and they're a way of cells communicating with each other. And viruses can get trapped in them and be released uh, as they're released from the cell. We can see, for example, polioviruses and other picornaviruses in envelopes when they're not really envelope viruses because they're in exosomes. So, you know, the, the idea that you need to kill the cell and break it open is not 100% correct. That's how a lot of the release of these non-envelope viruses occur, but not all of it. Someone asked, does poliovirus trigger autophagy? Yes, uh, it does. And that's why we think these are being these particles are being captured in those uh, autophagosomes. All right, next time, Wednesday, is the last part of the infectious cycle. We're going to talk about what happens in an infected cell in terms of macromolecular synthesis. And we have, we'll have gone through the entire reproductive cycle. You now understand how viruses reproduce. And the second half of the course, we can talk about how viruses cause disease and how we can prevent it. Thank you.